1 Peter, beginning chapter 1, verse 9. So if you'll take your Bibles and just look along with me. If you're not sure right where that epistle is, it's toward the very end of the New Testament. You'll find Hebrews, James, and then right behind that you'll find the first epistle that Peter wrote, 1 Peter. So let's go to that section of Scripture because we're talking today about managing joy in the midst of great circumstances and crises and hardships. And as the worship team just presented to us, God is with us in the midst of that. That's what Peter is wanting to encourage the saints with in this text. So let's go to that section of Scripture. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he says in verse 3, According to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That last phrase there gives us a little insight to salvation. It is occurring in the past when we receive Christ by faith. It is ongoing in the present as we are being sanctified in the Holy Spirit. And it is future glorified in the fulfillment of that when we see Christ Himself. And so Peter is giving them a forward-looking approach, looking forward to that great inheritance that is unlike any inheritance that you and I ever contemplate. But now verse 6 is where I want to focus today through verse 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Can I just pause here to say in just a quick prayer, Lord, help our faith to grow in such a way and be demonstrated in such a way that when we see Jesus, praise, honor, and glory will be there in the midst of that. And God will look upon our lives and our faith and He will be praised and honored and glorified. That's living well. That's living well in great faith, challenging faith, but great faith. And then move on through the rest of that, um, verse 8. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So there again pointing to that future glory that will be the completion of our salvation. Now let's pray. Father, your word has been read, and I pray now that your spirit, who inclines us to understand it, helps us to grasp it, would also develop our heart in such a way to receive it that we might walk in it. And in so doing, Father, we, by the end of our time together today and by the end of our life in the future, when our last breath is taken, we will be shaped more in the image of Jesus because of the work of your Spirit through His Word. So do that work today, I pray. Lord, we need it. 
Uh, if it were not for you working in us, we would be so desperate. But Lord, you've made it so different because of your working in us who are born again. So work in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now remember, Peter is writing to a group of people who are born again. They're born from the Spirit above. They're not, he's not just talking about a natural birth. He's talking about a supernatural birth where their old dead self has now been made alive in Jesus Christ. The old sinful self has been transformed. They are now saints of God by the declaration of Christ Himself and by the sanctification of the Spirit of God. And so he's writing to these people who have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, lives with and without Jesus are radically different. They are meant to be radically different. And the difference is not in health, wealth, and prosperity as some people falsely espouse. The difference is much deeper, much more immense than that. The difference is the change that Christ makes in Christians that affects us profoundly. He is changing us. He has declared us to be changed and He is ongoing changing us. For example, He is changing our worldview, the way we view things, the way we understand things, the way we perceive history and developments and conversations and relationships. Everything about what we are experiencing is now viewed through the mind of Christ, what we would call a biblical worldview. We're not trying to gain somebody else's opinion. We're not trying to come up with our own opinion. We're trying to see where is God in the midst of this? What does God's Word say about this? And how do I apply God's Word over this situation and come out with the will and way of God? That's, that's what God is doing in us in Christ Jesus. He is permanently affecting us with this great transformation. And we surrender our will to the will of God, beginning to pursue the will of God at the moment of our conversion. He, he gives to us His commission, the mission of Christ is now given to us, so we are on co-mission with Him. And in that, our will is yielded and His will is received. That is a change between that, those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. We no longer strive to acquire temporary resources and possessions. Instead, we view those things to be managed well that we might invest in kingdom purposes and thereby amass a treasure in heaven. That's radically different from the world who is constantly looking to seek to, to have and to possess and to go and to do and to, to hold on to. But you and I have been changed by Christ and that His Spirit is changing us so that we're receiving and we're looking at how we might manage that in a way that we would actually have eternal treasure in heaven. Man, when people grab hold of that, their talent, their time, their treasures all take on a different meaning. It's how can this be used to the glory of God? How can this be used to expand the kingdom of God? And how does this affect my days in heaven with a treasure that is waiting for me? Man, God pays great dividends. So simply put, our lives and the trajectories of our lives are changed forever when we're born again. And can I just say, if you don't see the change in the trajectory of your life, you are not born again. 
The change is meant to be evident in us. Nobody should have to guess about it. They ought to see the work of Christ in us. And I want that to be the case for each of us. So in faith we go from being stuck in our sin and imploding personally to being born again and then placed on a forward moving life. We're not just hanging out as the rest of the world might be hanging out. Instead, we are moving forward in the ways of Christ, in His righteousness and in His purpose and in His reward that He promises to give to those of us who are faithful to Him. So in the first few verses of this epistle, Peter is calling us to bless God, and he calls us to bless Him because we have been born again, born from above, and in that we have living hope. Now, this word hope in the language of the Bible is very different from the way we use hope today. Hope today is, uh, has a little bit of question mark to it. Well, I hope this happens, or uh, I hope my wife makes banana pudding this week, or I hope that whatever. That's not the context, and it's certainly not the way that the word is used in the language of the Bible. In this, hope is certainty. Our hope is there. And so this being born again from above, our certainty of life, the hope that we have is in Jesus Christ. And our hope moves us through this life all the way through to our death, through our resurrection and on to an inheritance that is imperishable and unfading, never ending. This is what God is doing in us. And Peter is drawing their attention to that. And in that he says, bless God for that. Bless God for that great work. So bless God because of the salvation that we experience today and in our future by faith in Christ Jesus who moves us to anticipate the completion of that salvation which is to come. And bless God because we are eagerly longing for the inheritance that He will lavish on us. And the inheritance basically is Him and all that He provides that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's a life of glory in the new heaven and the new earth that He will place us in. Last night we were outside till uh, well after dark when the moon started rising. Then it wasn't so dark anymore because it was amazingly bright. But until that moment, in twilight, Man, the stars were beautiful and we were seeing things in the sky and just, just quietly marveling at the wondrous work of God. Now, if I can do that and you can do that, which you probably do, and there is sin abounding in your flesh and there is regret and failure in your life and there is sin abounding in the world, but yet we can see that glory. Imagine what it will be like in the new heaven and the new earth where there will be no sin, no regret, no failure, no sense of pulling back from God, just utter glory on full display. And we can't help but constantly utter out His worship and praise. What a day that will be. Discovery without fear. Uh, being able to go without limitations, just in awe of God's creation. One day, I'm going to bounce around throughout the chaos, the cosmos without any chaos, without any fear, and without any limitations. And the rest of our days will be spent just blessing God for that great work, giving us opportunity to experience that. But we bless God for that eagerly awaited creation without sin. So listen. God means for us to live our lives in Christ, in anticipation, having these three things. According to this text, a forward perspective, 
God wants us to live our life today with forward perspective. So when you're going through daily life, especially trials and tests, you are going to have to have a forward perspective. That's what Peter is helping those who are living in the chaos and the sinfulness and the persecution and the isolation of exile. He's helping them to have a forward perspective, to think beyond their immediate circumstances, beyond the crises that they are experiencing in this life. He's helping them to think beyond that. It reminds me of a saying that a good friend of ours would, would say regularly to us, and that is, in light of eternity, in light of eternity, what is going on in your life, put the forward perspective to that by just those three words, in light of eternity, in light of eternity, that's, that's more than it, uh, in light of eternity, that's four. So those four words... In light of eternity, when the doctor gives you the news, when the boss comes against you, when people persecute you, when people lie about you, when things didn't go as planned, when the ball game goes south, in light of eternity, what does this mean? There's many times that I get upset about things and then those four words, in light of eternity, changes a perspective and I'm not so upset anymore, Lord six months from now this isn't going to be a big deal to me is it and certainly in eternity it won't be a big deal in light of eternity in light of eternity now might i just say that some of the things that we contemplate with a forward perspective eternity does matter in that situation in light of eternity with the death of a loved one who is in faith in christ in light of eternity that changes the perspective totally doesn't it in light of eternity, in the resurrection, I'll see this person again. In light of eternity, we will discover wondrous things. In light of eternity, Lord, we will praise and rejoice together with, with you. In light of eternity, this changes. And when the doctor does give bad news, in light of eternity, Lord, though you might take my body, which you will of everybody, in light of eternity, this changes in light of eternity, this diagnosis changes the way I think. So in light of eternity gives us a forward perspective. And we experience how we ought to respond with eternal impact when we consider that. Here's the way Paul wrote it to the Romans saying, Consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in heaven. So yes, the suffering is real. I'm not belittling that in any way, but in light of eternity... It pales in comparison to the glory that will be revealed. Secondly, when we're living our life in Christ with anticipation, we have a spirit-minded understanding. I was talking to somebody earlier before the service started, and there was just a wrangling, a wrestling with this concept uh, that we were discussing. And we are seeking a spirit-minded understanding in this. And sometimes you might not understand the circumstances and why God has brought them about in your life or why you're experiencing them, but you just kind of come down to this spirit-minded understanding that God's ways are always perfect. He is always good. He is always loving and he is always right. And though I may not understand it, he will even bring good out of this thing. Just a spirit-minded understanding. And then the third thing is a heavenly gaze. 
just recognizing that Christ will vindicate justly. So here's people who are exiled, being persecuted, being sinned against harshly. They deserve none of the treatment that they were receiving. But with this gaze towards heaven, they must know that Christ will righteously vindicate. In fact, he declares, the Lord does, vengeance is mine. He tells us, leave room for my vengeance. You don't have to bring this about on your own. With the forward gaze, you know that Christ will vindicate you in those times when you have been sinned against. And then just recognize with this forward gaze as well that Christ will not only vindicate justly, but he will reward handsomely those who are faithful. You just faithfully respond, you, you faithfully lean forward, you faithfully engage in the mind of the Spirit of Christ, and God will reward you for that. So I think that Peter is helping us to recognize that we ought to lean forward with an eternal perspective, that we ought to think in the way of the Spirit, and we ought to look to Jesus who awaits us in heaven. And if we do that, then we can love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, as Jesus said. And we can, all that we do, whatever we eat or drink, do it unto the glory of God and we can do our work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, and you are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what God is doing in us by His Spirit, by this being born again, this movement of sanctification in us, is He is helping us to engage in ways that Jesus said, this is the blessed life. That's a very radically different life. So if I were going to give a summary statement to all that, it would simply be this, rejoice anticipating heaven. Even as you're experiencing the hardships of today, rejoice anticipating heaven. It changes everything. Now in verse 6, Peter moves us from anticipating this inheritance in heaven and he moves us to consider our participation in the trials of this life. So yes, we anticipate heaven, but we're also participating in the trials of this world. So he says in verse 6, In this you rejoice, talking about heaven, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think I told you last week that these verses 3 through 12 are actually one long sentence that Peter has written in the original language. Now we put in a lot of punctuation in there, a lot of commas and a lot of periods, but it's really just one long sentence that Peter is giving to us. And so when you have big sentences like that, it's good to read them over and over and over. I probably read this, this section that I'm teaching today 30, 40 times, just over and over and over and over. I encourage us to read God's Word in that way, especially if you're wanting to grab it. So this is one of those, you kind of have to slow down and think about it, think about the phrases where you get a little stumped, you just pause and pray. Now, Lord, I'm trusting your Spirit to give me insight that it's necessary for me to have for this text, that I might walk faithfully to it, just reading it and praying. Here's what I think is coming out of this particular part of the text. Well, five 
five points that he's teaching us about trials. Why are you going through trials? Why are trials part of our lives? Why is everybody experiencing them? Some of you are in the middle of one right now. Why is that? Well, I can tell you this. Here's what we learned. Trials are temporary. Peter is helping them to be mindful that the trial that they are experiencing is temporary. And trials are actually beneficial. I'll mention what those benefits are in just a minute, but they are beneficial. And yes, they often make us grieve. We grieve in the midst of the trial. But we don't grieve as people who have no hope. Maybe we weep because we're experiencing pain. Pain physically, pain of the heart, pain of the spirit, whatever's going on. It grieves us. And trials can vary. Your trial is going to be very different from somebody else's trial. Mine might be different from yours, yours from mine. There are all forms of trials, various trials, he says. And the trials test the reality of faith and they strengthen the genuineness of faith. And really, if I were going to focus in on one, it would be that one. That here's what the trial is doing to our benefit. It is testing the reality of faith. I, I was a few years ago, I think it was 2016, in Egypt, and I was talking to a a pastor, a leader of other churches as well, one who encourages and strengthens pastors. And part of my purpose there was to encourage them. And, and I asked him just, how does the church, how is the church during this period of persecution? And he said, Randy, the, the persecution that Egyptian Christians have faced has been like a great shaking of the tree. And when there is a great shaking of the tree, the dead fruit and the bad fruit falls away. And he says in that, the church is glorified. And what is left is good fruit. And it's that good fruit that can have the greatest impact on our persecutors. They think wildly differently, don't they? People who go through trials think so radically differently than people who don't experience significant trials. I think it's a measure of God's love that he uses trials like that in our life. The trial is testing us. Is your faith genuine? What he told me is that if you're a fake and you're just kind of going through the motions in church life and you're coming under intense persecution and you might lose the very things that you have cherished in this world, when you are a fake, you will pull out. And it will be revealed. And when it causes a little tension, a little strife, a little doubt, you'll pull away. And that's a testing. Peter mentions the refiner's fire. He's speaking about gold there. Our faith is way more valuable than gold. But gold is increased in value as the heat is brought to it and the flames burn away the impurities in that gold. And what you have left is a more precious and valuable gold. And he says that's what trials are doing. Trials are revealing those who are disingenuine. Uh, is that the way you say that, disingenuous? I think I've got that word wrong. What, what's up with my brain and my tongue? <laughs> Trials are revealing that you're lacking truth about your faith or trials are burning away the impurities of your faith. 
And what's left is far more precious. Let me tell you how precious it is. When you go through trials and you're faithful, in the end when you see Jesus, your faith will bring praise, honor, and glory to him. Let me just say, you can't bring to the measure of faith, praise, honor, and glory unto Jesus without trials. Trials bring you to that point. The testing of your faith is very helpful to us. I can recall a beloved brother of ours who was diagnosed with a very deadly disease. And I remember him going through the surgeries and the treatments and they were difficult in and of themselves along with the pain and the suffering of the disease. And he one day said to me, I'll never forget it. I stepped off the platform and he met me at the steps. And he said, Randy, I would not wish this on anybody. If I had an enemy, I would never wish this even on an enemy. But I wouldn't trade what I'm going through one iota. Because everything that I'm enduring has brought me to a sweeter, closer relationship with God. And it's all worth it. Wow. As he took his last breath, he cherished that relationship with his Lord. And the trial, the trial is what took him there. A deadly disease that he learned to experience Christ in the midst of the pain. Did we pray for his healing? Absolutely, almost daily. But I also prayed for that inner man to grow stronger and stronger. And he had a glow about him that when he saw Jesus, no doubt his faith brought praise, honor, and glory to him. I don't want the trials, but man, do I ever want that in my life. I want it for you as well. So Peter is elevating that. Christians living in exile there in modern-day Turkey to whom Peter is writing, they lived in harsh persecutions and they experienced great hatred because of their Jewish heritage and even more because they were followers of Jesus Christ. These Christians are experiencing injustice and they suffered as victims of persecution. However, nothing about their painful experience here on earth changed the eternal realities, not even in the slightest. Their identity was still remaining secure in Christ their inheritance was safe in heaven and God was abiding with them he belonged to every one of them listen just because you are experiencing a hard time God is not necessarily mad at you he is not punishing you and he is not removing his presence from you instead God is with you in the trial right in the middle of it Evil people may be perpetrating various trials and persecution against us, but God is sovereignly using every account for good for his children every time. Joseph's story is one of those that illuminates this. It's a precursor to Christ, and I think it's a precursor to life with Christ. He was bound, as you remember, sold into slavery he was held hostage, enslaved by foreigners. He was removed from his 
family and his land. He was lied against and falsely accused. He was imprisoned and then forgotten for many years. And yet at the end of his trials, this is what he came to conclusion. He said in his forward perspective, spirit-minded understanding and a gaze towards heaven, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are doing today. You see what he's doing there? He's not belittling the, the hurt. He's not belittling the trial and the suffering. He's saying, you meant it for evil, and man, evil it was, but God meant it for good, such that salvation could be brought about, the salvation of many people. And God elevated him in that humble place where he was greatly persecuted and sinned against, and God elevated him and exalted him and placed him in a position like none other. God is doing a work in the midst of your trial. If you'll stop thinking only temporarily. Stop thinking about only what's happening right around you. Have a forward perspective. Have a spirit-mindedness about you and put your gaze to heaven. You'll see God in the midst of it. And he's a good God. He's a righteous God. He's a just God. He's a merciful God. And he's a present God. Paul says it differently in Romans, but the message is the same. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. What, what is going on? To be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn. That Christ might be the firstborn of many children of God. So here's what God is doing in the midst of the trial. He's forming you into the image of his son. He's shaping you. He's burning away what is not of Christ and elevating what is. I'm troubled by pain and suffering that some of you experience and have experienced. I regret, regret being unable to console and ease the immediate hurt and grief. And I wish I could lift the burden and then cast it in the deepest part of the sea, never to be returned to you again. And sometimes I find myself sitting in someone else's living room, in silence, anguish, tears welled in my eyes and often streaking my cheeks. Words escape me and comfort is like a strange, distant person that I cannot even introduce into the room. But there is an always reality that anchors me in those moments though I may not be able to articulate it at the moment here is one anchor that settles me in this agony and in this affliction that is blowing like a category five storm and here it is God is here he is in the midst of this trouble he is in the midst of your pain he's in the midst of your your sorrow purposing for good and when I look around in that room and I see people in anguish and they're children of God, I want them to know that though you can't see it right now, even this God will use for good. It's what anchors me. I may not even be able to get my mind around it in the moment. Certainly can't put words to it. But that's the truth that anchors me. You find it throughout the scripture, and I could give you story after story after story about how that's true. So if I were going to summarize it, it would be this. 
rejoice participating in trials. Rejoice. That's what this whole passage is about. Rejoicing. Rejoicing because you're going to heaven if your faith is given to God in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in that. You have an inheritance that is secure in heaven. And rejoice even in the exile. Rejoice even in the persecution. Rejoice even in the participation of trials. But fortunately for us, it doesn't end there. When Jesus returns and we see him, everything will be different. Everything changes. And I believe that he will open our understanding to the trials that we have endured on this earth. I think that God will impart to us insight to his providential work throughout our years. And I trust that we will understand how he was shaping us and forming us into the image of his son through trials, how he was burning away impurities. I trust that we will know that. Perhaps he will even reveal what he did not do. Perhaps he will reveal the image that he longed for us to have if we would have allowed him in our woundedness to bind our wounds. Or maybe he will share the disposition that Christ had, which he meant for us as suffering was imparted to us. Or maybe he will even speak the truths and insights that he was expressing to us in the midst of the trials that we could not hear because we were crying and desperate in our words. Then as he reveals that to us, I think he's going to wipe away every tear from our eye because there will be no more trials. And that day there will be no more suffering. There will be no more nurturing. God will give us a glorified body. When we see Christ, we will be like him. And trials will be forever done away with. The revelation of Christ changes everything. In verse 7, he says, let that revelation bring praise, honor, and glory unto him, even for the testing of our faith. Look again in verse 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So once the various trials are complete, and our days here on earth have ended, then it will be that our faith will be to the praise, honor, and glory of Christ Jesus. There will be no more need for faith because everything that we have faith in will be before us, experienced by us, treasured to us. So Peter had every reason to be confident to these spiritual wounded warriors living in Turkey. For though they had never seen Christ, it was evident that they loved him. And though they did not have Christ with them in that hardship physically, they believed in him and rejoiced with a joy that they could not even put into words. It was inexpressible. And it was a joy that was absolutely glorious. You're going to go through trials. You're going to have periods of suffering. I think what Peter is saying is if you do this well, even in the midst of that, you will be filled with such joy that you won't be able to communicate it in words to other people. And it will be absolutely glorious, unique, that only the Spirit of God could bring that kind of joy to you. 
This isn't some fickle happiness. This isn't some emotion. This is God-given, spirit-empowered joy with the truth of Christ known and trusted. And you can't even put your feelings of joy into a descriptive paragraph. Just inexpressible. It's amazing, isn't it, that the Holy Spirit measures out that kind of faith to us and then blesses us when we exercise it. I pray that God will find us there. So trust, love, and joy, they mark the person of genuine faith. It's sensible because those who believe in Jesus love him, and those who love him are filled with joy. And the result in the end, which I think is amazing, is such love and joyous life and faith is praise, honor, and glory unto Jesus Christ. So let me just give you a summary. Rejoice, expressing the joy of your salvation. Just rejoice, expressing the joy of your salvation. So when we sing privately or publicly unto the Lord, it ought to be that joy is evident in us. I've been to funeral services where the family's seated on the front row and the casket is right before them and songs are sung and the person raises their hand in worship to God with inexpressible joy because they know this day is very different for the person who is in faith in Christ. I've been with people in the sorrows and sufferings of their life and they have a deep sense of joy. They can't put words to it, but it's there. And they love Jesus and they trust him and that brings great joy. Oh, my friends, that's, that's what trials do. And I'm going to be very confessional to you. When hardship comes my way, I'm trying my best to wiggle out from under it. I want to wiggle away from it. I want to find out a way that I can get out of that trial. But maybe, maybe God wants me to slow down and join him in the midst of that trial and grow in it with genuine love and trust and joy. And in the end, when I see Christ or you see Christ, it'll breach the praise, honor, and glory of him. Now let's go to him in prayer. For those, Lord, who are suffering in this moment, their heart is heavy and their mind is racing. The pain is real. The future on this world is in doubt. Father, would you give them a forward perspective? Don't let them get stuck, please, I pray. A spirit understanding and a heavenly gaze trusting Jesus and I pray as that various trial in their life does its work and refines their faith I pray Lord that it would be unto the glory praise and honor of our King and Savior and that it will be for our good for all eternity so give us the perspective I pray that it's holy and right and for those who will face trials, Lord, I pray that you're conditioning their heart even now to be ready for that time. And as we look back and as we anticipate the future, let us have the right perspective of Christ 
who is making all things new. And I pray it unto his glory. Amen.